Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 91 of the show. Nine to episode 100. My name is Michael Bailey, and joining me as always is the man that knows Disney World, Walt Disney World, excuse me, I will not take his <laughs> wrath this early in the show, inside it out, Mr. Scott Gardner. How's it going? That's that's not quite the build-up. I hope I can live up to that expectation, but thank you very much. Well, one of the two people talking right now does a show about that. <laughs> with the This uh, is very true. With the annou- the official announcer for Tales of the JSA, uh, Scott Rifen. So Yes, Mr. Voice for Tales of the JSA, yes. <laughs> I uh, love when people are like, who is that guy doing it? He sounds so professional. It's, it's because he is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so much more professional than I am, yes. But, uh, oh yeah, thanks for the plug. Um, I, I don't know that I've really talked the show up much of anywhere, really, on, on any of the shows that I do. But yes, uh, I do a show with uh, our buddy Scott Rifen called Earning My Ears, which is, uh, as Mike says, it's a, a Walt Disney World-centric uh, show. Uh, just talking about, basically, it's, it's just an opportunity for Scott and I to geek out about our mutual love for Walt Disney World. So, uh, yeah, if you're so inclined, give it a listen. Uh, especially if you're you know, thinking about coming down uh, anytime soon, you know, this year as we head into the, the warm summer months and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, give us a listen and uh, let us know what you think. Anyways, folks, we have had a, uh, a, a, a about a week, no, yeah, about a week off or so. Uh, More or less. Basically because Scott and I needed to recover from the first episode of Crisis. <laughs> Well, you know, this is a, that's a that's a perfect segue. You gave me the perfect opening here because I wanted to make sure that we started out right at the top of the show with with two things right out of the gate. One is, uh, well, a warm welcome to all of our new listeners and especially all of our new face group members. And Mike and I were joking before we got started that I, I hope our Facebook members, you know, for the for the Tales of the Justice Society of America Facebook group. I'm always worried that they don't know that there's actually a show. Yeah. You know, that the Facebook group comes from the show. But uh, I, I do believe that more and more of our Facebook group members are, are finding the show through that group. 
But one way or the other, whether you found us through the group, through a Google search, through a buddy telling you about it, through the crisis episode, whatever it is, I know that we have new members and we have new listeners as well. So welcome. Uh, you know, as I always like to say, you know, whether this is your very first episode or you've been listening since the very beginning, we welcome you and we thank you for the download. We hope you enjoy the show. The other big thing that I wanted to absolutely make sure that I did was heap tons of praise on my co-host because Mike, man... I know that could not have been easy, and uh, I, I'm not just kissing your ass, dude. Crisis on Infinite Earths number one sounded great. Well, I it was that. it was everything I had hoped it would be, and that much more. It was a solid first episode, and uh, it, it just listening to it seriously brought tears to my eyes Aww. because I was like, this is everything I, I really you know. It, it, there, I mean, come on, there'd been so much buildup mm-hmm. yeah. for this. And so, you know, there was always that possibility that you'd get it over with and go, eh, you know, it was kind of the episode one of, of podcast, you know. But no, it wasn't. You know, it was it was solid. And uh, thank you so much. I mean, it really, really sounded great. Well, I, I was very pleased. I, I, one, I appreciate that. And I and I and just to, to have the mutual admiration society here thing going on. And again, not kissing your <laughs> ass or waxing your car. But, you know, you did a lot of the legwork for the crisis management segments leading up to it. I always felt kind of bad because I would read the issue, but you would you had the research and all that. So I think really, you know, it's it's the crisis stuff has been such a collaborative effort between the two of mm-hmm. us. So more so than anything else I think you and I have ever done. Uh, I was just glad that I found music for the Blue Beetle uh, because that one was yes. tough because he doesn't really have a theme, you know? It's not like he's ever had like a like a a TV show or something in the radio show. I don't think right. really, I don't think the audio quality of any of those is going to be any good. So I, I, I found that hero. I remember you had sent me the hero at large score and I'm like, you know, Scott really likes this score and I think it'd be like a kick right in the middle just to surprise the hell out of him by having that show up for about, you know, you know, 10, 15 seconds and then just go away. So I thought that was great. It was brilliant because for one, yes, I mean, you know, I, I realized as soon as I heard it, okay, this is for me, you know, which was great. But also, you know, the hero, you know, the character that uh, that John Ritter plays in the movie is just a regular guy, yeah. you know. So I liked that, you know, that kind of, because if I had to score it, and I was thinking about this, you know, both before the episode actually came out and then after it came out, I'm like, how would I have scored it? And I was thinking specifically about the Blue Beetle segment. And I was like, you know, Mike really outdid me. You know, here I am, the score guy, but you really outdid me because if I had to score it, I probably would have taken the easy road out and gone with something from, like, say, the 60s um, Spider-Man cartoon, which seems too obvious, you know, because it's it's a Ditko character. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, sort of, Charlton slash DC's answer to Spider-Man you know, but I don't. I don't like taking the obvious road, and I always have fun putting in music that people have to work at and go, "Ooh, yeah, uh, that well, sounds familiar." Well, one person did but... recognize it. I was very impressed to yeah. see that. So it's, that's it's, cool. It's always kind of heartening to to have somebody get you and mm-hmm. what you're going for. No, that was a. It, I will have to say, I'm not. I'm not complaining or anything. That that was that portion was a little difficult to score. And my original concept was, well, every character is going to get their own music, and I found that that was kind of impractical, uh, right. simply because there, you know, you're just not in the 30th century long enough to really do anything. You know, it's just like she grabs Dawnstar and she's gone, and that's it. The Blue Beetle segment was right. a segment, 
the you know the the World War II segment was a little more fleshed out. Plus, it's easier to find World War II <laughs> right. music because of this show. Uh, so it, it was really uh, you know if if you guys want like the director's commentary uh, on it, you know it was um, a lot of <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, some of the music was from the Green Lantern live action film because uh, hmm. I, I found that that had kind of uh, uh, the dram- cosmic scope. The, yeah, the cosmic scope and the dramatic. Uh, the 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 battle at the end was the opening theme to the Green Lantern First Light score uh, because again it was kind of cosmic. It had a good energy to it, and uh, another peek behind the curtain. Anytime you hear the ending music to uh, Best of Both Worlds from Star Trek The Next Generation at the end <laughs> of something, that is for Andy Leyland because he thinks that's funny. So, uh, And I was doing it. It was a running gag over it from Crisis to Crisis for a little while that a- anytime we ended a score, I would end it with that because it was during the Battle of Metropolis. So it was just like, dun, 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 dun. But here it felt like... <laughs> warranted you know well it wasn't so much a gag but an appropriate place to to uh to put it and that score was done by ron jones who did other music in the episode because under my little personal history segment i pulled up a lot of music from the superman ruby spears animated score yes yeah i caught that and he did that and i was just like wow i'm kind of balancing myself out here (laughs) and not even really meaning to so yeah, I, I, as I was listening to that, I was listening. Uh, I always pay more attention, uh, you know, when it's something I've been on, so I know, you know, vaguely what we were already talking about. Listening to it, I was actually paying more attention to the music because I'm, I'm just drawn to, you know, the score music naturally. So I'm listening to the music and going, I think I know what this is, <laughs> but let me listen to it a little bit longer. And then it, it was actually several of the Superman family segments, and when it got to the, the segment, um, because when I was a kid, I had a, a VHS tape where I had recorded um, the very first episode of the the super the 1988 Superman show, the Ruby Spears Superman, and I can't remember if it had the Superman family segment on the end of it or not. I mean, on the recording that I had, but I know it did have a segment where Ma Kent takes Clark to the grocery store. Yeah, that was that was one and of the, I watched, the Kent family album segments, right? And I, and I listened to that so many times, or, you know, watched the episode so many times that I, I kind of memorized it. So when we were talking and it got to that segment, I was like, okay, yes, it is the Superman fam- you know, family album. And, and then I, you know, I was like, okay, good on me. I recognize, you know, I was right. I recognized it. Well, it, it, but it, it just had, took me a little bit of uh, time to get to it. I feel kind of bad because I put the 50s Superman an- uh, score under your part. Uh which was uh, a couple tracks off of that where basically it's it's young Clark growing up in Smallville. Uh, oh, the Adventures of Superman? the very first episode of Adventures of Superman. Oh, okay. And then I did the, um, the, the Superman animated Ruby Spears stuff for mine, and I'm like, well, that's more appropriate because that was the time period that I was learning Crisis. Right. And I'm like... But I gave, I made Scott look incredibly old by having the <laughs> older-sounding music under it. 
It's not, <laughs> Thanks. It's not quite what I had in mind. It wasn't like I set out, but I felt kind of bad. But I left it in because I thought it worked. So, but no, it's a. Uh... It, it did really work. It was uh, it was very good. But no, I, I did think that's funny because I did think that it was just a, a different piece of Superman family album that I just didn't recognize. No, it's just uh, if it's a Superman score, I more than likely have it. So uh, that's just. That's just the way of the world right now. But no, uh, wow, we did it. We, you know, no one's ever done a director's commentary for their own uh, show, but <laughs> I guess we kind of did that. It's like, you can't do a commentary for audio. You really can't. Because, right, right. Because it just doesn't work like that. So, <laughs> But we thought we'd start off, we have gotten since uh, last November... Uh, when we around the time that we did our last kind of email episode, we've gotten a bunch of email uh, for tales. Oh, yeah. and we've gotten some for crisis. So as uh, Scott is fond of saying, keep those uh, cards and letters coming, even though it's all electronic and, <laughs> right. and uh, there's nothing card or letter shaped about it. So we're just going to kick things off. Uh, unless Scott had anything else? Uh, no, that was pretty much it. I am ready to dive into this. Well, the first one uh, is from Dale Russell. Uh, this is from November 10th, 2014. And it opens up, You Guys Suck. Uh, which is always a nice uh, nice way to kick off a, a segment. Uh, I just finished listening to Tail's entire run and his stopped. Wow. Um, okay. I want my money back. Well, well, we'll be sure to get that right to you. Uh, I broke out all my young all-star comics to read because your podcast put me in the right state of mind. I do have many of the all-star. I, I do not have many of the all-star squadron because I rarely saw them on my spinner rack. I'm ready to hear the Crisis podcast, and they are not here. Crisis on Infinite Earths and DC RPG is what made me a DC kid. It's one of my favorite books ever. So when you're ready to podcast, I'll be listening. Dale, thanks. All righty. Now, when I first got this, or you know, when it first showed up in our, our email inbox, and I saw I saw the title, "You Guys Suck," I had two reactions. My first reaction was, "You know, that was a long time coming," because uh, <laughs> I often joked, you know, that uh, that we have never gotten one that was so entitled, and you know, not to my memory anyway. And uh, I mean. We've we've seldom gotten really you know in, in all the podcasts that I've ever taken place and we've seldom gotten really like strong negative feedback. We've gotten some criticisms here and there, but never one that was just flat out you guys suck. And so when I saw it, it was kind of like okay, well that gets that out of the way. But then the other thing was oh, all right, you know, and and uh, Dale, I'll be honest with you, buddy, I was I was totally prepared to kind of kind of rip into you a bit. But after reading both this email and then seeing that you did write back, you know, back into the show later on down the road, I realized that I, I think you were, no, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were kind of going for a, a comedy bent here, like, oh, come on, you know, kind of just just being disappointed you that you got suck. into the show and yeah, I got to the end. And <laughs> you you nothing hooked else. me. In, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You hooked me and now you went away. So. But believe me, I totally understand the sentiment. Because, yeah, we did. We we made a big deal about being back, and then we weren't back anymore. So, yeah. There was a lot of back and forth for a while there. You know, he mentions Young All-Stars uh, in the uh, Tales Facebook group. We have a uh, we have a professional amongst us. Uh, Louis Manna, who drew Young All-Stars towards the end of the run, has been posting mm-hmm. sketches and stuff he's done over the years. And you know, 
you know, you see a signature sometimes, or you see, like, a credit, and you get used to it, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't quite place his name until somebody mentioned, like, a who's who entry he drew. And then I remember, no, he did that amazing Iron Monroe who's who entry uh, with Malcolm Jones III for the Who's Who Update 88. Uh, mm-hmm. It's this great shot of Iron Monroe breaking out. It's a, it's, it's like okay, we are, we are not hinting that he is the Superman replacement. We are flat out telling you in this image that right. he is the Superman replacement. So it's, uh, it's really cool to kind of see his artwork popping up and uh, seeing the sketches and the, the the early concepts and everything that he does. Uh, and you know, I'm kind of down on the the later issues uh, of of young all-stars but i never i don't think that was on an artistic level i always thought that the storyline just kind of wrapped up oddly so but then again i thought the issues of all-star squadron leading up to crisis were gonna suck and i've been enjoying every single one so right i'm really looking forward to uh to when we get to young all-stars because I, I have much the same memories. I was thrilled with it when it started. And I remember it starting really strong and finishing very weak. So it's going to be curious to see if I have the same feeling looking back on it again. Because to my memory, I, I think I've only ever given this series one complete read-through ever. Mm-hmm. I've, I've re-examined individual issues here and there over time. Because I know, you know when you and I were first becoming friends, we did our epic... Uh, Hugo Danner episode, so I went back and reread the uh, the origin of Iron Monroe in there, where Hugo Danner's part of it. And then um, a while back, I reread the storyline, the uh, the one with Neptune Perkins, because it was tied in with the Titanic and everything. And I was working on a project that never quite came to fruition with that. You know, I, I found um, out recently that the origin of Neptune Perkins was originally going to be the Earth Two Aquaman Secret Origins issue. Yeah, I, I think somebody. I think it must have been you that was telling me about that. But I had I had heard that recently. Yeah, I was uh, I was. It's it's in one of these All Star Companions because uh, they cover not only all young All Stars, but they also uh, cover Roy's issues of Secret Origins as well. Hmm. So, uh, Robin Shag, you need to pick that up. So, for something I think you guys are planning in the future. So I wonder if the Titanic element would have would have been still part of it, or if that came later. So I'm wondering if Roy would have actually somehow tied Aquaman's origin to to the Titanic. That actually could have been very interesting mm-hmm. if done, you know, the the correct way. As it ended up being done, it was done. It was so yeah. Even if even <laughs> if it was just him watching the people drown and like eating like like eating what is the Atlantean <laughs> version of popcorn, going wow. Those fuckers had it coming. <laughs> There's something you don't see every day. One other thing that uh, Dale mentions here that uh, uh, I hope I remember to mention, one of us hopes to remem- uh, remembers to mention at some point when we get to it uh, in the coverage, is he mentions the DC role-playing game. I bought that thing for one reason. Because the cover on it was by Perez, and it was all the heroes fighting the crisis. And that's the only reason I ever bought that thing. I don't, I never even played it. I, I mean, I... I have not played it either, uh, but Shag and uh, a guy that goes by the name of Siskoid, uh, who has a blog out there called Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, over on the mm-hmm. Fire and Water Network, they've done a couple episodes of a DC role-playing podcast... 
oh, okay. uh, where they kind of talk about it. So, yeah, I I have both the first and the second, um, the second like versions of that because, like you, I was mainly getting it for the artwork. And, right. Uh, a fr- uh, an old roommate of mine actually gave me all of his source books at one point. So a fr- uh, another friend bought me the first one for like my birthday years and years and years ago because he found it really cheap on eBay. I, I'm not much of a gamer, so uh, even either video or role playing. So I've never really sat down and played it. And to be honest, I really uh, don't have the patience for it. <laughs> But I get the source books when I can find them because they're great resources uh, in terms of character histories. Uh, I I have two that are related to this show. One was called uh, DC at War, which has this... Excuse me. Wow, burped right in the middle of the sentence. That's professional. Which has this uh, great Sergeant Rock cover uh, by Joe Kubert where he's reading like a Life magazine with the All-Star Squadron on the cover. And it was the original Mayfair Games Golden Age source book uh, that has all the Golden Age characters in it. And then uh, back at the beginning of the 2000s, another company got the DC license and they put out a gorgeous JSA source book that has a Tom Grummet cover. And, and a lot of the artwork of the characters inside is Tom Grummet. Uh, and it, and it's it's very much the post crisis history of the Justice Society, so uh, those were really uh, those were great to find, uh, and I'm kind of glad I did. So even though I don't play the games, I have a bunch of the source books, because even even with Superman, the Earth One Superman never got a Who's Who entry, but in the first Superman source book, which has that burn cover of Superman in front of the American right. flag, there's there's like the entire history of the Earth One Superman in there, like a Who's Who entry. So I have that thanks to you. Did I send you that? I think that was one of the things you gave me when uh, you gave me some uh, gifts as I was leaving town and, and moving to Florida, and I think that was one of the things oh. that was in there. I yeah, I did have an extra copy at that point. So awesome! Yay! <laughs> it occurs to me that something I am uh, sadly lacking in my collection is the I don't know if it was a promo. I guess it must have been a promo poster for the the DC role playing game. Because the poster image is the cover of the box, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, again, it's it's the heroes, uh, you know, as they're headed off to the crisis uh, by Perez. I've got to get that one of these days. I saw it on eBay a couple of years ago, and it was super cheap and like an idiot. I didn't, I didn't make yeah, because those I wish I had, uh, those yeah. tend to go really expensive. Yeah, I would love to have that. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's the same image that's on one of the. Um, you know, I have a stack on my nightstand right now of DC-related fanzines. Yeah, that's not the cover DC, to uh, uh, Crisis. Comics I mean, Comic Center. That was. I was trying to think if it was. Da- you know, is that the David Anthony Craft mm-hmm. one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a cover. It's the yellow. Like has like a yellow border around mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that yeah. that was a great magazine. I, I've only discovered mm-hmm. it in back issues, but he's actually been putting out huge anthologies. Yes, uh, yeah. Printing that series and those interviews. There's a, there's an interview with George Perez right after the whole JLA Avengers thing fell apart in the mid '80s, mm-hmm. where Perez was just pissed off about the mm-hmm. entire situation. So it's a neat little peek. Uh, they're time capsules, really, 
Uh, yeah. Oh, I bought that particular issue off the stands. That, the Comics Interview was one of the few fanzines I actually did try to keep up with uh, on a regular basis, you know, in, in the beginning of, of being a collector. And it wasn't until, like, like comic scene and stuff like that came along that I was able to, you know, actually subscribe and get, you know, follow them regularly. The comics interview when you just, it was kind of catch as catch can, you know, <laughs> they have a great, but I uh, love that burn issue. Yeah. Uh, where he sits there and talks about how he's a company man and he's a Marvel guy. And this was like, I think a year or two before he went over to DC. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love Marvel until I get to draw Superman. <laughs> and then I'm gone. So, <laughs> he has the little, <laughs> the little cartoon effect. Pew! He's gone. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and jump to the next one here. The next one is not spam, fraggers. It says "Tales of the Justice Society of America lives," and this one's from Jason Trenner. It says, "Hey guys, continuity matters to me. DC and Marvel confound me, given they have the freaking internet to use as a resource to keep track of shit. Seriously." Uh, on the EU, I on the EU wonder why the hell they're bringing in Han, Luke, etc. for the last hurrah when they should have been done uh, 10 to 20 years ago. That's not a slam to the actors, but they're really long in the tooth now, and we were past time for the torch passing by light years. How did we suddenly... S- <laughs> he jumps to talking about episode 7. Uh, let's see, I'm going to skim down here just a little bit so we get back to the Tales talk. So Jason continues, he says, Yeah, and the real American made a member and then team leader of the All-Star Squadron. Love how that was just so they could uh, boot him out of a plane and told him, Go uh, go have fun trying to fight the Spear of Fe- Destiny's effects, jerk. <laughs> and uh, the villain turned out to be the original Human Torch's evil brother, or something like that. Yes, yeah, he did turn out to be an android uh-huh. in that storyline. Uh, well, Amazing Man, whoever uh, ended up with, uh, did birth his two sons. One who died fighting in extreme justice, I remember that. And the other had been part of Justice Society of America when they expanded like crazy in John's run toward the end. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, he was an amazing man, was a member of the team. Wow, why did I not remember? Wait a minute, was there a cover where he was all... He was all silver? I think so. Like he absorbed... Okay, I kind of do... Now I do kind of vaguely remember that, now that he says that. Uh, might have been his fiance in uh, in this issue as the second son bitched why the Justice League and such didn't help in the disaster in New Orleans. On to Infinity Incorporated. Well, that was an interesting issue. Though seriously, Northwind uh, locked Hawkman in the bathroom and not in his trophy. <laughs> yeah, you should have locked him in the bathroom. That's <laughs> That'd be interesting to see. Hawkman have to try to pull out a MacGyver in the bathroom where he takes like an empty toilet paper roll and like the toothbrush holder and figures it. <laughs> uh, maybe even his sitting room would be a better place. And like the mayor, uh, wondering what was wrong with him, thinking about his election chances when so much damage had been done since the JSAers had been exposed to that water. Uh, don't have much more to say on the issue as it is building towards the climax. The Swamp Thing story is that Swamp Thing is trashing Gotham because his girlfriend is being held in jail for having sex with a plant. Yes. Um, As a side effect of us covering the crisis right now, and I'm really trying very hard to mentally put myself back in that place of, you know, where was I at 16 or 17 in 1985 as as the crisis was ramping up? I've actually been rereading Moore's run on Swamp Thing. 
And, dude, it is very subtly but very much tied to the crisis and the buildup of crisis and everything. I've really been enjoying that. And this is where I'm actually at in the run is uh, right up to the time where Abby just got busted for uh, for basically having relations with, with vegetation, which is interesting. Uh, anyway, he continues. He says, yes, I've uh, enjoyed more Swamp Thing. I also enjoyed his Wildcats run, and uh, but that's as far from the point of the podcast as you can go. Have fun, guys. And again, that's from Jason Trenner. Thank you, Jason. All righty, moving on to the next email. Mr. Gene Hendricks, host of the Hammer Strikes, the Hammer Podcast, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks. And uh, he even, in the email, has a Two True Freaks Amazon link. So. <laughs> I love Gene. He's the. Have you met Gene? Have I have you ever not met, met Gene. We we almost met when I was up north, but uh, the schedules just didn't work out. Unfortunately, uh, we were a lot busier than we were thought we were going to be. Actually, but uh, no, he's a hell of a nice guy. So he is nicest guy. Yeah. Uh, his uh, email is titled "Continuity." It says Mike and Scott. Tales is back. Huzzah! I know that you both have schedules. That makes recording these episodes a bit of a problem, so I wanted to say how much I appreciate you both making the effort to keep the show going. In the latest episode, recorded months ago, I know, Scott asked listeners to write in and let you guys, guys know how you, we feel about continuity. Well, as I stated in the Hammer Podcast, Episode 2, shameless plug, get going there, sir, uh, I'm a <laughs> bit of a continuity wacko. I have no uh, problem with people ignoring some past things they don't like, as long as these things are not contradicted. If you're going to start over with a clean slate, like John Byrne did with Superman, or George Perez did with Wonder Woman, that's perfectly fine, but going forward without a reboot and then contradicting previous continuity continuities gets my hackles up, Gene. You and me both, sir. You and me both. So. Cool. All right. Oh, we got one from my good buddy, Mike LaCroix. I've also met Mike in real life, too. Again, hell of a nice guy. All roads he lead says, to Disney, apparently. <laughs> yes, they do. Everybody comes here eventually, yes. <laughs> this one is entitled, and I love this, Continuity Rant. So, oh, I'm looking forward to this one. Again, this is from Mike, uh, Mike LaCroix. Now, Mike is the uh, host of the Canadian Military History Podcast. And Mike says, Scott and Mike... He says, I really enjoyed your continuity rant on the latest tales of the JSA. Oh, okay, so apparently we had one. Ooh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I don't remember. We had a continuity rant? Yeah, we, we, we talked about it. I, I vaguely remember editing that. Because <laughs> as I've said in the past, I say stuff on podcasts and then I for, completely forget I say it. So later on, someone asks me about something I said and I'm just like, duh. Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah, that that's always, you know... And I know you've had this moment, too, where you, you meet somebody in real life that is a listener to the show, and they start quoting you things that you've said in <laughs> prior... And that always weirds me out. I'm like, wow. You know, because I can't get my wife or my kids to listen to me attentively for, like, any length of time. So the fact that somebody's <laughs> listening to me enough that they're actually memorizing things that I... That's kind of frightening to me. But anyway... Mike continues here. He says, uh, I always appreciate a good story uh, that has continuity. That only goes so far, though, in that I don't like when you need to buy 16 issues plus the crossovers just to know what's going on. I like the format of one and done with a backup feature or two or three part stories and crossovers are the exception, not the norm. What I don't appreciate either is the five year later cop out. They did that with the new 52 and the 1986 Superman titles. 
I wish they would have taken the Batman Year One, or would have taken Batman Year One and built on that character bit by bit, highlighting flaws and failures until the near-perfect Batman was born. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was Burns' intention with Superman initially was that he was going to introduce them, and you would have kind of a, a, a nascent Superman kind of gaining his confidence and, yep. and you know learning to fly, so to speak. And DC kind of nixed that idea because they said, no, 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 we need a Superman that's that's established. But am I correct in that? Yeah, but the thing is, is that with, with at least with Superman, um, in 1986, and, and and this may sound like I'm just being kind of an apologist for that era, and if that's the case, I don't really care because uh, I am. But when Byrne relaunched Superman in 1986, yes, it was a it was a day one reboot. You know, we talked about that on the crisis episode, but there wasn't really anything in there when I read it. Now there may have been a feeling at the time because that's two different things. What the reader feels at the time and what's actually in the story can sometimes be like a a huge gap, but there was really nothing in, in, in the, in the overall continuity that yes, man of steel took place over like a, a five year, five or six year time space like from issue one the end of issue one to issue four was like a year and a half but i never got the sense that it was disjointed like all of that history that burn built up in there was earned because he was establishing it as it went along and in the proceed in the following stories uh especially when you got into after burn left they they started kind of filling in those gaps. So because DC didn't like say we're doing a zero day relaunch of the entire line, that DC universe still felt like it had a history to it. And right. I followed a good number of the new Fifty Two titles when they launched, and everything felt hollow. Everything, especially with Superman, felt like you're telling me something, you're not showing me something. And that is, to me, the big difference between the two relaunches and why the Superman books have never really recovered from the New 52 is because, well, one, I don't, I don't think they have a clear way of handling the character, but that's a rant that Scott and I really don't need to get on right now. We've got, like, two comics to talk about and a bunch of other stuff to do this <laughs> but, but it's just like, you know... I. I, I I will give Man of Steel a pass beyond my love of the story because I can sit there and justify certain things about it that make it completely different from the new 52. And I'll put my soapbox away. No, I I, I, get, I got your back on that. I feel exactly the same way. Uh, my continued series Super is my favorite part. power, really? Uh, okay, I'll stop now. <laughs> I thought he was getting super jazz hands. I would have been cool with that, actually. Well, with anyway. the new costume, he's got gloves. So, <laughs> don't please, please don't wind me up. Please I wasn't trying. I wasn't trying to, sir. I was just trying to make a joke. I apologize. <laughs> don't poke the bear. <laughs> uh, my continued series is my favorite part was when the young uh, Bruce Wayne gets his ass kicked by three B and E guys. That's breaking and entering for you following along at home. On the fire escape when he was testing out his new bat suit. Uh, I actually like that as well. I like that one as well. Like a lot. Uh, Michael Bailey said it best. Want me to read that again? No, I've got it. I've got it sampled. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You want to do a reboot? Then go ahead and start from day one. Hello, stupid. 
and built your DC universe from there. None of this, well, GL and Batman aren't affected, but uh, everyone else has to start over. God, that, was, that was like my biggest problem with the new 52 is it's like, we're going to start the DC universe over from the beginning, except the except two titles guys. because they're right. selling really good. Right. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Uh, thanks again for another enjoyable episode, and I hope you are looking for crisis guests. I'd like to audition. Hmm. We've got something in mind. It's going to be a yes, while. Yes, we do. But uh, it, we've got something in mind, guys. So Most definitely. Yeah. So. And again, that's from Mike Lacroix, the uh, producer of the Canadian Military History Podcast. Well, I think there we should probably... What you think, Mike? Uh, I think we should knock it on the head, as Andy Leyland is fond of saying. Uh, for emails on that, we do want to get to them, folks. We've got we've got a, a good number built up. Oh yeah, we do. Uh, so we we definitely want to get to reading those. But uh, we've we like I said, we've we have uh, been going for a good um, forty minutes now. So I think we I think we need to actually get to the books we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Always a good plan. Always a good plan. All right. Oh, it's me, isn't Yes, it? you're starting this one off. Yes, I'm sorry. I'll wake up here eventually. All right. So, this is, we're going to go ahead and jump into the main feature of the show. Before recording. <laughs> we should always wait to drink till after we record. So. <laughs> That's five o'clock somewhere. Let's see. All right. So, we are going to dive into All Star Squadron number 44. This is the April 1985 issue. This was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. January 24th, 1985. So the crisis has started, which, of course, duh, we've covered the you know crisis number one now. But I just want to point out the crisis has started, but it is going to take some time before we begin to feel the effects on Earth 2. So just bear with us on that. The cover on this issue is by Arvel Jones and Tony Diesniga. And it depicts, you've got the Tarantula, Firebrand, Our Man, and the Phantom Lady. And they're kind of... Uh, they're, uh, how would you describe those? They're kind of like being menaced, I guess you'd say, by, uh, by these new villains called Night and Fog. And, uh, I love just to the left of the, uh, the All-Star Squadron logo, it says, what a way to louse up our man and Firebrand's first date. (laughs) (laughs) Original cover price on this was 75 cents. The title of the issue is Night and Fog. Roy Thomas is uh, credited as plot slash editor. Paul Kupperberg is uh, the scripter for this one. Arvel Jones and Pablo Marcus, not Tony Disniga, are the interior artists. Gene D'Angelo is the colorist, and Cody is the letterer. Manhattan at night in the year 1942 on the world we've come to know as Earth 2. Johnny Quick races to Grand Central Station with his gal, Liberty Bell, in his arms to catch a train to Philadelphia. Across the river, in the heart of Brooklyn, several members of the All-Star Squadron, uh, all in their civilian identities, watch as Scrapper of the Newsboy Legion defeats his much larger opponent in the boxing ring. Jim Harper, secretly the Guardian, congratulates his young friend and explains to the All-Stars that this is why he hasn't been on too many cases lately because he has been mentoring these youths to keep them on the straight and narrow. Meanwhile, on Park Avenue, our man arrives at the penthouse apartment of one Danette Riley, 
The man of the hour wonders why she was so insistent that he show up in costume and not as Rex Tyler. He receives his answer when Firebrand opens the door. Only, it isn't quite Firebrand. It's Sandra Knight, secretly the Phantom Lady, dressed as Firebrand. Danette, dressed as Phantom Lady, hubba 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 by the way, says that she thought it'd be fun if they all went to this masquerade ball dressed in each other's costumes so she makes our man trade suits with Tarantula. Ew. Now, I... What? What was that? Ew. Yeah, ew. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, you know, I'm thinking that our man must really want to get laid because there's no <laughs> friggin' way that I'm swapping clothes with some dude to go to a masquerade party. Sorry, just ain't going to happen. And our man does actually bitch a bit about it, but ultimately he just kind of goes with the flow and they exchange costumes, which, like Mike said, ew. They arrive at the party and uh, we see a vast array of costume types, more or less true to the era. You've got uh, people like the, the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, Frankenstein, Groucho Marx, and so on. Danette introduces her friends to her father, a steel industry magnate, and uh, her dad mentions that her brother Rod, the original Firebrand, and his buddy Slugger are being released from the hospital in San Francisco, which is a callback to the earliest issues of All-Star Squadron. Afterward, Mr. Riley goes on a bit of a tirade about FDR and this damn war and uh, finally excuses himself to check on his other guests. Tarantula and Firebrand... Notice that uh, he seems awfully nervous, but then they all they just chalk it up to party nerves. So the foursome go dancing for a bit to the music of the live band and comment on the rumors regarding the lead singer of the band, Frank Sinatra, and how he wants to leave the band and strike out on his own. Our man, still dressed as Tarantula, and Firebrand, still dressed as Phantom Lady, sneak off on their own for a little get-to-know-you-better time out on the balcony. On their way out, they are shouldered aside by a mysterious costumed couple who gives Our Man a chill. Our Man makes his move, but Firebrand asks him to take it slow, so they dance to keep warm. In the main ballroom, the mysterious couple confront Mr. Riley, and he whisks them away to his private study where they accuse him of betraying his agreement with kindly Uncle Adolf to help sabotage the American war effort. Riley says that uh, he was happy to help when the Axis were just fighting the uh, fighting Russia or the British, whom Riley, originally an Irishman, always hated. But then came Pearl Harbor, and with that, America's involvement, and now he's not so comfortable. The mention of Pearl Harbor causes Knight to give her and Fogg's origin stories, basically that on the same day of the attack, the Pearl Harbor attack, Adolf signed... Uh, signed off on the paperwork allowing the experiment that would transform the pair into a couple of super baddies that they are today. And now, with their vicious powers, they've been dispatched here to deal with Riley and to assure his cooperation, or else. Riley orders the pair to get the hell out of his house, but Fogg isn't playing around. He grabs Riley and forces him back, smashing him out a window, and then he dangles him one-handed over the city streets far below. Consider everything. Most carefully, says Fogg, but Riley's response is a steadfast, You go to hell! And at his sister, Knight's command, Fogg drops Riley. Just then the doors burst open and the four all-stars, now all in their proper costumes because they smelled a rat, confront the sibling supervillains. Danette dives out the window in a desperate attempt to save her father. 
Our man and Tarantula confront Fog, but his ability to turn himself into, into an intangible mist confounds Iron Man and he gets clocked. Phantom Lady uses her black light ray on Knight to no effect and is socked for her effort. Tarantula scores a lucky blow against Fog, but then Knight rescues her brother and chokes Tarantula into unconsciousness with her dark powers. Outside, Danette is unable to totally negate her father's downward velocity and the two of them land hard on a lower ledge. Knight sees this and reports uh, Riley and Firebrand dead. Our man, pissed off at this news, pops a miracle pill and lays into her just as Fog decides to complete their mission and chucks Phantom Lady out of the window. Our man snags her by the ankles, but then struggles to hold onto her and pull her back because the Miraclo hasn't kicked in yet. He cranes his neck to look over his shoulder, sees the two supervillains approaching, and fears that this is the end for he and Phantom Lady. But then suddenly the Miraclo does kick in, and he easily pulls Phantom Lady up, with, and with a mighty slap he sends bricks and mortar from the window frame flying like shrapnel to take out Fog. Furious over the deaths of Firebrand and her dad, our man confronts Knight, but the Dark Woman uses her evil powers to consume the masked hero and send him plunging toward Oblivion. Out on the ledge, Danette recovers and has a few precious final moments with her dying father in which he confesses that he did work for the Nazis, but he makes her swear that she won't let his life's work fall into their hands before he passes away. Fog recovers and comes to assist his sister in sending our man to the great beyond, but then a sudden torrent of flame distracts him. One pissed-off Firebrand is intent on making sure that these two pay for killing her father. Firebrand goes Nova, setting the entire room ablaze until her teammates finally recover and talk her down for fear that she's going to burn down the entire building. Firebrand comes back to herself and douses the flames, after which she collapses. During all this... Night and Fog somehow manage to escape. Of course they do. Later, outside, the All-Star Squadron witnesses the coroners bring out Riley's body. A homicide detective asks if they know what this was all about. Why would Nazi agents attack Riley in his own home? Firebrand covers for her father and says that, as a steel magnate, he was vital to the war effort, and the Nazis know that it is men like him who are making it possible for the Allies to hopefully one day beat the Axis. The cop notices Firebrand's tears and asks if she's okay, to which the heroine simply replies, It's just the rain in my eyes, Lieutenant. Just the rain. <laughs> and, and it all disappears like tears in the rain. Firestorm starts giving the ending speech to Rutger Hauer's ending speech to Blade Runner. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read the uh, the notes on this one since uh, I have this book and I don't have the one for the uh, Infinity Incorporated one. So what do we got here? Just a few notes on this one. Uh, usually when superheroes' civilian identities uh, attend a costume party in comic books, they dress as themselves. So Roy Thomas had two pairs of them switch costumes, even if it made scripting and perhaps the reading a bit confusing at times. Ed Riley, like some Americans of Irish descent, favors the Nazis over the English in the war, even though by early 1942 the U.S. and Great Britain are allies against the Axis. He believes President Roosevelt, quote-unquote, maneuvered Japan into attacking America to get the nation into the war via, quote-unquote, the back door. In Roy Thomas's opinion, 
That's at least more plausible, that's a more plausible uh, hypothesis than believing FDR knew an attack was definitely coming at Pearl Harbor. And I think we've seen this mentioned before where Roy Thomas has admitted that he doesn't subscribe to yeah. that theory, that uh, the FDR knew of the attack. Um, I've often heard this one uh, bandied about too, though, this idea that he may not have known specifically about the attack but that he basically uh, allowed something to happen to, you know, like he says here, backdoor us into the war. Um, I'm not really sure how I feel about either of those theories. Yeah. Night and Fog, and it gives their uh, German pronunciations here, which I'm not even going to attempt. Nacht and Nebel. Okay. <laughs> Are personifications of the Night and Fog decrees, a secret directive issued by Hitler on December 7th, 1941, under which political activists were to be, quote-unquote, disappeared throughout German-occupied territories. Figuratively speaking, potential enemies of the Third Reich would vanish into night and fog. Phantom Lady finds that you cannot blind night with her own darkness. I actually kind of liked that. I yeah. thought that was cool. A later letters page notes a place or two where dialogue got confused between Tarantula and Our Man who were wearing <laughs> each other's costumes, which that's bound to happen when you do something like this. Roy Thomas's friend Jim Harmon, author of several books on old-time radio, points out that the five-day deodorant pads mentioned by Tarantula in one panel didn't exist until some years after 1942. Whoops! <laughs> and I think that's pretty much it as far as the notes. There's a couple other things here, but I'm going to mention them in my own notes. So, uh, so we'll get back to that. What do you got on this one, Mike? What did you think? Um, I really enjoy. Overall, I really enjoyed the issue. Um, I like I kind of hinted at earlier, and I've said in a couple other episodes that my my initial memory of reading this era is that it really started the the title started to kind of wind down at this point, and I think I was confusing that with something that we're going to be getting to relatively soon where the members of the JSA are all sent off to different planets and uh, I think I was confusing that with here where here I think we're really getting some solid superhero action from Roy the cover uh, I like the cover quite a bit uh, our man looks a little off but everyone looks good I like night and fog night I mean a fog is a bit anachronistic in his mm -hmm. look, he's kind of got long hair, and he looks like an 80s supervillain. It's funny you say that, because my note is he looks like a 90s Marvel villain, yeah. but I think we're both thinking the same thing, yeah. So, I love that they start off with the boxing match with Scrapper from the Newsboy Legion, because I'm a mark <laughs> for the Newsboy Legion. I also like the fact that on page two, uh, Johnny, Sto Johnny, Johnny Storm... <laughs> I, I could see Chris Evans playing Johnny Quick. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, Johnny Quick falls takes a nap after they get on the train in their costumes, which is kind of funny. And I love on page th uh, page three that we get the whole thing that the Newsboy Legion know that Jim Harper's the Guardian, but he just won't admit it to them. Right. The uh, <laughs> page four, I will agree with you. Danette Riley looks very fetching in Phantom Girl's outfit. <laughs> and yeah, them switching costumes is like kind of weird. Uh, I'm glad they're exactly the same height and weight and can fit in each other. Because these aren't... I, I don't get the sense that these are spandex. Because spandex really didn't exist back then. So these would be like wool or, or some kind of material like that. So they don't really stretch. So I'm kind of wondering... I mean, it works for the story, but whatever. 
the page six, I love seeing all of the costumes uh, be kind of period appropriate. You got Groucho Marx, you got somebody dressed as, you know, Frankenstein, somebody dressed as Dracula, you got the Wizard of Oz people, uh, you've got a, a cowboy and a cowgirl and a clown who's creeping me out. I will admit that. Uh, I will admit that. That clown looks a little 70s to me, though, yeah. and I, I think it's just the, the combination of colors, but it, it looks more like something you would see in, like, like Brother Geek or something as, <laughs> as compared to the 1940s. But I like seeing Danette Riley's dad and getting more kind of her, because, you know, we know her older brother is the original Firebrand, and right. that he and his... I don't think they were ever hinting at it. I just got that there was something between Rod and his bodyguard. Not in like a torrid or, or like a natural type way, but that I think there was something going on between the two of them. Um, and not just because apparently he decided to wear a pink outfit in 1940. That, that I'm not casting aspersions <laughs> like that. But no, I just liked seeing this. The, the whole party scene in general was really cool. I like on page 9 that we get Frank Sinatra. I had no idea that he played with uh with the group with a group before breaking off on his own. And I like that on page 9 we get some dialogue about that where you know Jonathan Law is like he's a dreamer then Sandra nobody's made it on the solo route since Crosby. Though though not bad though for a lead singer. So it's just like you know we would be talking about like David Lee Roth breaking off of Van Halen right. to do his solo career right around this time period, as a matter of fact. So it's kind of cool that you can have that same conversation, but in the past. Uh, well, have you seen? You've seen the Godfather films, right? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, uh, thank I'm you for not talking... giving me crap about that. By the way, <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later on here about the whole thing with Sinatra and how it's kind of connected to that. But, uh, the introduction of night and fog was cool on page 10, them coming in through the window and, uh, Danette Riley not wanting to take it too fast. That's a, it's a nice little character moment for her and, Re and uh, Rex Tyler where he's obviously wanting to, to get a little closer. Don't be shy. And she's like, I'm just not ready for that. It, it, it's nice. I mean, it would I would have been fine if they would have just started making out. Um, right. But the fact that she wants to kind of take it slow shows that in the 40s, even though we've, we, you know, we're getting the idea that Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell are kind of knocking boots, uh, you know, courting was a little different. You know, right. you, you would go out on dates with, you know, and, and you could do that today, but it seemed like it was a little more formal and going out on dates with different guys before you kind of finally settled on the one that you were going to marry and you didn't necessarily jump into bed with all of them. Not that it didn't happen, but still. The uh, the fight with Night and Fog is really good. I love their origins on pages 13 and 14. Uh, having it take place on the night of Pearl Harbor adds a adds a little uh, an extra bit of uh, drama there the scene cutting forward a little bit because i really liked the fight the scene where our man pops the pill and it takes like an like almost two pages to take effect was great because mm -hmm. on page 19 when that pill kicks into effect 
And in that middle panel, he just knocks the bejesus out of Fog. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love that. But then is quickly taken down by Knight, showing that these two are a threat. You know, this was a fight. This wasn't like, you know, them coming in and whooping up on somebody or the bad guys coming in and whooping up on them. No, this was like a brawl. And when Danette's father dies after admitting that he helped the Nazis, which, you know, is probably one of those things that, you know, in retrospect, you're like, well, how could he do that? I think Thomas on page 21 gives us enough of he was doing it before the war when he thought that me, you know, because they were fighting the British that, you know, they were where he wanted to put it. But as soon as the United States got into the conflict, he's like, no, I'm an American first. So I'm going to pull all my support. But still, it would have damaged his reputation. You couldn't have repaired that if it would have gotten out in the news that this steel magnate was helping the, the Nazis. So when she comes in on page 22, it's like firebrand unleashed i mean she has not taken anything and they basically have to keep her from burning the building down and i thought that was such a dramatic way to end the issue it's it's a physical representation of her raging at the death of her father and that last page just got me this was a great issue I, I have to admit, when I read the first few pages, I'm like, is this going anywhere? But once they got to the party, I'm like, oh, okay. And then once the fight started, I was really on board with everything. Uh, a couple different notes on the... I just wanted to mention some of the ads. There's a great ad for the V comic book, uh, which I never read. But uh, I, I see in the 50 Cent bin all the time. So at one, one point, I'm going to pull the trigger on that. There is a crisis ad in here. That's the the cover to the first issue. There is also a Meanwhile column that we're really going to have to read on uh, the Crisis Presents show. uh, Because uh, it's on the back cover. Because it really kind of gives like how the rest of the DC Universe, or if you were reading other DC titles besides Crisis, how you might find Crisis. My favorite ad, though, and there's a different one in Infinity Incorporated. Is across from page eight. Uh, do you know me? Probably not. Few people do, since I only recently made my dramatic debut in this indifferent identity. Uh, this new indifferent identity. I've been around for years under another guise, but aside from Superman, nobody remembers that. That's why I carry Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. One cl- quick glance at my biography and friends from a previous lifetime know what they've been missing. The Atomic Knight. All new art by Comicdom's finest from DC Comics. Here where, Here's where it began. Be here for the new beginning. Don't leave your old career without it. And people our age you, know what they're referencing. Right. This mm-hmm. would be lost on younger readers. Yeah. I was <laughs> just going to ask you if you knew what they were Oh, yeah. They were American Express. Don't leave home yeah, without American it. Express. Carl Malden. Yep. Uh, yep. talking, I just remember the Carl Malden ad like a thousand times from when I was Well, there a were a bunch of these, though, around this time that were actually celebrities. And I, the one that I, always stands out in my mind is the one where Stephen King is walking through essentially a haunted house. And he's, it, it, the, those commercials would start with this. Do you know who I am? Uh, and basically they would kind of give a little bit about themselves and then when it got to the very end of the commercial it would show you a blank 
American Express card, and then that person's name would type onto it. So it would say, you know, it would be a blank card, and it would say Stephen King. And I loved those commercials because sometimes you knew the person and sometimes you didn't. And that was really cool. But the whole idea was that, you know, you can be somebody with the American Express. You know, it, it was a it was a symbol of, of status or something. And but I, I loved these who's who ads because there were a bunch of them like this and they were always with with pretty obscure characters. I, I, I thought these were great. Yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to since they plug us all the time, I'm definitely going to give another plug to uh the irredeemable shag and rob kelly over at the fire and water podcast network they uh they're about to wrap up the first who's who series in the next couple of weeks and they've been doing that show for about two years now almost uh well, i've been thinking a lot about that because uh i had actually planned more my very last note on my notes for this episode was to read this um meanwhile column here but if you want to wait and do that on another show we can do that as well it but is, i actually did have a note for that it is so tied to crisis that i figured it, mm-hmm. it fits better with that show and it's a tease to get okay. people to listen to the next episode of the crisis podcast right this is true so too. but no seriously I, I, this is what i'm going to suggest to you guys and i'm going to say this on the next episode of, of of tales of the jsa presents crisis on infinite earths as well uh if you really want to have fun listening to our crisis coverage listen to the first ish episode of their who's who podcast because it because who's who came out a month before crisis and then follow along listen to our show and then listen to the corresponding show of theirs so the first issue of crisis will be the second issue of who's who and so on because really those were the two big things going on at dc in 1985 and i think it would be kind of fun because one it's an excellent show that i cannot recommend enough and two there are constant mentions of like pre-crisis dc history but as crisis starts wrapping up the entries themselves start changing slightly so it, it, the the two shows really do go well together and they're about the same length per episode too so carve out about five hours of your day uh, to, well, to I've been to thinking it, so. a lot about, uh, you know, especially when I, it all really came to a head when I read this specific uh, Meanwhile column here. But I've been thinking about it for quite a while that we should try to have some sort of a of a crossover episode with those guys, even if it's just, you know, getting the four of us together and just shooting the the breeze about this whole thing. Yeah, I, I think that would be fun. I think we should do that. Absolutely, and I know they'd probably be up for it as well. Well, maybe I'd not like to Shag, think so. Although they've sure. never invited me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd still like to think they'd be up for the idea. Wait a second, were you not on an episode of no. the Power Records show? I was on the Power Records show. Yes, well, that's part of the Fire and Water podcast. They've only had one guest on the Who's Who show. Uh, it was me, but they've only had one. See, <laughs> see, see how it is. That's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Good night, folks. All right, so let's see. What have I got on this one? Oh, I'm sorry. Were you done with your I am done with my notes. All right. Uh, I really just have just bare bones on this one. Um, I like everything on the cover except for Night and Fog. I just, I really don't care for the way that they're depicted here because she's just basically, she's just kind of a phantom, which is kind of weird. And then, uh, yeah, uh, Fog, rather. Yeah, he... He reminds me of like the Beyonder or something. 
it's yeah he's just got a really strange look on on the cover of it um i was thinking you know as you start into the story you know you've got uh liberty bell and johnny quick racing through grand central station and it got me to thinking i wonder how many superheroes have been to grand central station over the years between comics and movies (laughs) i was thinking this this is a pretty common locale Mm -hmm. for superhero activity uh you know in the superhero medium I liked a bit with Guardian. I thought that was really cool. It was nice to kind of see what he's up to during this. I would have liked it a little bit more because um, it, it's a nice little interlude, but then it doesn't really go anywhere. But it was still kind of cool just to kind of check in with, you know, what else is going on in their world, uh, so to speak. Okay, so the bit with Frank Sinatra. So you've, you've never seen The Godfather, and we probably have other listeners that have never seen The Godfather. But essentially there's a, a, a plot in The Godfather. It's right at the beginning of the movie where uh, the the movie essentially starts and it's the Godfather's daughter's wedding day. So all these people keep coming to the Godfather and making requests of him because I, I guess, at least according to the movie, it's some sort of Sicilian tradition that, that he can't refuse them any request that's made on his daughter's wedding day or something to that effect. One of the people that comes and, and talks with him is this singer... Uh, named Johnny Fontaine and Johnny Fontaine is actually the godfather's godson and he comes to him because he uh, he's trying to get there's this big movie that's going to be produced and the the producer of the movie won't uh, essentially won't let him have the role that he wants he wants to be in this movie because it'll basically it'll reinvigorate his career and through the course of the movie, you come to find out there's a story that's told early on in the movie about Johnny Fontaine and essentially how his career was made. And it was because he was part of this band. And at one point, because he was gaining success and popularity and everything, he wanted to break away from the band and, and go into a solo career. And the band leader wouldn't let him go. So the Godfather goes to talk to this guy and he takes with him his basically his chief enforcer guy and the chief enforcer guy puts a gun to the band leader's head and assures him that one way or the other either his signature or his brains are going to be on the contract that's going to release Johnny Fontaine from you know being a member of the band and allow him to go on the on the thing anyway long story short supposedly according to myth and rumor Johnny Fontaine was Frank Sinatra that this I guess is somehow linked to real events. And so when I got to this part of the story here and it's talking about all this, I couldn't help but wonder, was this Roy Thomas kind of acknowledging that whole thing? And I thought that that was very interesting, but it plays a lot better. If you've actually seen the Godfather, uh, let's see what else here. Page 10 panel five. Yes. The one with, uh, with tarantula kind of kind of hugging and snuggling up to firebrand out on the balcony just a little creepy i think there because she almost looks like she's struggling to kind of get away from him a little bit or what you mash her but then again why would she wear this outfit on their first date you know Uh, i i don't know i you know it's 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 phantom lady's pod uh outfit so right i mean you know she can she she should basically be able to wear whatever she wants without 
having somebody maul her. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying it as an excuse. Uh, but at the same rate, it's you know, is this appropriate dress for a first date? You know, um, it, it just seems a little you know. But on that subject, though, you you turn the page and page eleven, that very first panel. All right, between the Phantom Lady outfit and between Brunhilde here. Does this seem like a little bit too much boob for 1942? It just seems... Yeah, I, thought, I could see that. You know what I mean? I thought women were, were a bit more... Mod- but then again, this is supposed to be, you know, a, a high society masquerade ball kind of thing. And, you know, who knows what they were all into. So, I don't know. I just thought it was a little bit weird. Page 17. I got a kick out of the fact that uh, while the heroes are down and out... Knight kicks Tarantula in the stomach. I'm like, what a bitch. I mean, they're already all unconscious. And she just hauls up and kicks him. I'm like, oh, that wasn't right. Pages 18 and 19. Phantom Lady is really lucky that she wasn't cut to pieces. Or at least, like, her ankles were, were all sawed off or something. As Our Man is literally holding her by the ankles out of this jagged glass broken window it just ugh, it just gives me the creeps thinking about it you know I, I don't know how she manages not to get cut especially when he yanked you know when the miracle kicks in and he like yanks her up it looks like now it's off the panel here but it almost looks like her ass would be scraped on that glass as she comes back in you know like get a nasty gash up a, up her back or something ugh, i just hate thinking about it uh, I agree with you, page 22, where uh, Firebrand just completely loses it. I love that. I love how she comes charging in through the hole in the wall, and she's got, you know, fireballs blazing, and she uh, basically tries to turn fog into steam, which I thought was really cool. But I did notice, I don't know if you'd necessarily call it like a continuity error or a no prize or anything, but I, I thought it was very strange that she comes in, She's all ablaze and everything. And then you see her in the third and fourth panel. She is on fire herself. Mm -hmm. And then you skip a panel and you've got Tarantula grabbing her going, Firebrand, Firebrand, stop it. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wasn't she on fire like two panels ago? So conveniently, she has stopped being ablaze. And now it's just her hands so that he can actually grab her. Because if he tried to grab her ablaze, I would imagine it would set him on fire, right? Yeah, more than likely. So I thought that was a little bit strange. Uh, the last page, the third panel, is this supposed to be Humphrey Bogart? (laughs) He does kind of look like him, I thought. It wouldn't surprise me. But, as I say, I really didn't have all that much on this one. I enjoyed it. I I thought it was okay. Um, Night and Fog, though, just didn't really do it for me. I I think they have great potential, I don't know that that potential was was necessarily lived up to in this. I, I thought Knight was pretty cool. Uh, I think my, more of my issues were the fog. He he just looks kind of ridiculous, and he's essentially he's kind of like a, a German low rent mist. Really, is what he, what he comes down <laughs> low to. Low rent mist. <laughs> you know what I mean? But oh, uh, I think that's uh, one of the new Fifty Two books coming out after Convergence. <laughs> is but it'll be interesting to see if he comes back or if they come back, because I can't remember off the top of my head if we see them again or not. I think I, they do, but I don't want to say for sure, because like I, like I said, I read, I read all these like, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, and I've read a lot of comics in between, in, in the intervening years, so some of this isn't as fresh as it once was. 
right. uh, plus I'm getting older uh, and uh, right you know they say memory is the second thing to go <laughs> I can't remember what the first thing is so <laughs> joke grenade um <laughs> Well, do you want to take a little break, or do you want to just forge well, on forward well, here? Let's, you know, for the listeners, we'll take a little break, uh, play some promos uh, for other shows that we do, and other shows that other people do, because I don't want people to think we're going to bogart the uh, the, <laughs> the ads. Um, and when we get back, I, I guess I'll be talking about Infinity Incorporated number 13. Yes. Uh, or, or as I like to call of it, uh, Thorn on Broadway. So. <laughs> oh, she does have jazz hands. Yeah, she's got serious jazz hands, dude. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Area. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more... Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at 2TrueFreaks.com Do you know me? It's frightening how many novels of suspense I've written. But still, when I'm not recognized, it just kills me. So instead of saying I wrote Carrie, I carry the American Express card. Without it, isn't life a little scary? To apply for the card, look for an application and take one. The American Express card. Don't leave home without it. Calabac, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisian, Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, 
and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Alrighty, folks, we are back with Infinity Incorporated, number 13, A Thorn Grows in Paradise. This was released on January 17th, 1985, so it is well over 30 years old now. Uh, Roy Thomas is the writer-editor, Don Newton is penciler, Joe Rubenstein guest anchor, courtesy of Marvel Comics, uh, Dan Thomas co-plotter, John Clark letterer, uh, which actually looks like Leberer. Um, bad, it does, doesn't bad it? Yes, there, John. Uh, a Roy and A Talon colorists. A more poisonous little barbecue I've never attended. Groucho Marx from uh, in Monkey Business and uh, flashback sequences in this issue based on material by Robert Kaninger and Joe Kubert. Nuclon is busy piloting the Star Rocket Racer towards a secluded vacation spot while Lyda and Hector Hall are getting busy in the back seat. Jade is also with them and decides to bail on the flying car before they land, and the lovebirds in the back seat decide to do the same, leaving Albert to land the car by himself. I'd, I'd make a joke there about him landing something by himself, but I just decided not to. He unpacks the vehicle and joins his friends at the beach and finds out that they have already gotten into their swimming duds and are wasting no time into getting some water time in. Lyda and Hector go off to find a more private place to have sex, leaving Albert with Jenny, who whips up some snorkeling gear with her power pulse thing, whatever her ability is. Albert is shocked to see that Jenny Lynn is swimming off in the buff and acts like a real nerd. I mean, seriously, I had very little skills at his age, and I think I would have kept it better than kept it together better than he did. Uh, and seeing, uh, I, I mean, he's he's living out like every Star Trek fan's fantasy here, <laughs> getting to see a naked green woman. Albert goes off to find Hector and Lyda, leaving Jenny alone to explore the island. We get a true sitcom moment when Albert interrupts Hector and Lyda's private time and discovers that they too are skinny dipping. Night falls, and the three and the four friends make camp and get a fire going. Jenny shows up with a, fa- a woman named Rose, or a researcher that is studying the fauna of the supposedly deserted tropical island. After introductions are made, the group settles in for some campfire stories that includes what nightmares wake them up at night. Jenny has been dreaming about Solomon Grundy for years, while Albert's nightmares have him turning into a monster and becoming a menace. Lyda's nightmares are more mythological in nature, given her background, that makes perfect sense, while Hector's involved ancient Egypt, which is no big surprise as well, considering who his parents are. Rose in, Rose's nightmares involve a sister she never had, getting hold of this mysterious thorn and becoming a menace to the inhabitants of a small island. This is why Rose has come back to the island, to exercise her demons forever. Everyone bunks down for the night, and, li- and later, Ginny is taken... Uh, captive by a large piece of plant life. Nuclon calls Liam Neeson, who calls the person responsible, and tells him that he doesn't have any money, but he does have a certain set of skills. Skills that will make him a nightmare for the people that took Jenny Lynn Hayden. If they let her go now, it's over. He will not hunt them. He will not look for them. But if they don't, he will find them. And kill them. Actually... Uh, it's not the movie Taken, and Albert wakes up and sees Jenny is gone, puts on his new clown outfit, and races Would have been a to- much better issue, though, had that happened. <laughs> did you ever see somebody did a did, did a take on that uh, trailer to, to the first Taken film where they 
while he was having his thing and he said i have a certain set of skills skills that i've developed over a lifetime and they like put in like images from episode one and him fighting as a jedi (laughs) no i didn't see that (laughs) <laughs> my favorite my favorite take on that one so far is the one where it shows it's just a picture of him on the phone and it says stop singing let it go or i will find you and kill you that's my personal favorite one i didn't think you were allowed to say that out loud in public uh, <laughs> given who you work for uh actually albert wakes up sees that jenny is gone puts on his new clown outfit and races off to find her he discovers that jenny is captive of the thorn the woman from rose's nightmare who only wants to find her sister she binds Nuclon to a tree, and soon Hector and Lyda have stopped f***ing long enough to come to their friend's aid. <laughs> Thorn proves momentarily too much for them, but Nuclon gets free and manages to hurt Thorn by hurting one of the plants she's controlling. Soon, the rest of the Infinidors are up and on the attack, and they manage to drive Thorn back, and she gets away f- from them on a secluded island that they could probably search, but hey, why bother? Soon everyone is back on the Star Rocket Racer, and Nuclon feels bad that the rest of the group did all of the work. There is some banter back and forth before they ask if Rose is okay in the back seat. She's a little shaken about the whole Thorn thing, but feels she should be fine when she gets back among other human beings. Yes, she should be fine. And there's a little bit of text here. Admit it, you knew Rose and Thorn were the same person all along, didn't you? To tell the truth, so did we. But don't tell the Infinidors, okay? Because they've got a shock coming. Next, Chroma. And how stupid are the Infinidors? Yeah, it's just like... this makes them look really dumb <laughs> on like several levels. So this is not what I would call the strongest issue of Infinity Incorporated. Going to All Star Companion Volume Four, which I just happen to have handy. As to why this issue covers his only work on Infinity, Dave Ross confirms that he was briefly scheduled to succeed Don Newton as a penciler. As I recall, the book had a higher page count than normal, and with so many characters to coordinate, I felt I wouldn't be able to keep up with the monthly schedule. After some consideration and a discussion with Dick Giordano, I declined the assignment. You didn't do too badly, though. I believe your new replacement was a young newcomer named Todd McFarlane. This issue also includes a pinup of Infinity Incorporated by Todd McFarlane and Tony DeZaniga to introduce the penciler who would take the reins with issue 14. Rose's dream narrative in this story is a distorted version of the Thorns' debut in Flash Comics number 89, November 1947, by Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert. Infinity now has possession of the Star Rocket Racer. This story was reprinted in the Best of DC Digest issue in 1985. Oh, I rem- yes, yes, it- I forgot all about that. Yes, it was. Okay, that's uh, that's fine. <laughs> Are you sure, Mike? Because it doesn't sound like it's fine with you at all. It really doesn't, brother. It is also the first issue in which no member of the JSA, not even the Star Spangled Kid, Power Girl, or the Huntress appear. And that is pretty much it. What do you got on this? Uh, I'm sure not you a hell have of a lot. of paper filled with notes on this. <laughs> um, not so much. Um, I don't care for the cover, much as that pains me to say, because the cover is by Don Newton and Tony DiZaniga, and other than uh, the Silver Scarab, I really don't care for anything on the cover. Um, and yeah, <laughs> she's totally got jazz hands You know what she's singing, on, right? right? 
Let it go. No! <laughs> no! Okay, so... <laughs> uh, on the interior, of course, you have a different inker here. And I... As I said before, Roy Thomas, class act, man. He actually thanked Marvel... Well, he didn't so much thank Marvel Comics is that he acknowledges that Joe Rubenstein is here courtesy of Marvel Comics. Because the deal was is that at this time, Rubenstein was actually in an exclusive contract with Marvel Comics, meaning that he could only work for them during this time. But he was very good friends with Newton, uh, Don Newton, in real life. Now, you have to remember, Don Newton had just passed away. This is his last published work. And the only full issue of uh, Infinity that he got to do. Now, this is very strange to me that this is uh, published so weirdly out of order. Which makes me think that maybe this was supposed to happen earlier or something. And they just jumbled up the stories or something. But anyway, this is the only full issue that uh, that Newton got to do. And Rubenstein, who, again, was you know good friends with him and was, by Newton's own admission, Rubenstein was his favorite inker of his works. So uh, they got permission from Marvel for to make this one exception to have Rubenstein come in and actually ink the issue. I think that's cool. I, I, I think that's really nice that they did that. Um, that said, I think it's a little hit and miss in the art. And again, it really pains me to say that. But at this time... Uh, Newton wasn't doing so good. You know, he his health was on the decline and everything. So, you know, I, I think you have to kind of make some allowances there. Um, unfortunately, this is this issue was much the way that I remembered it as a kid. I, I didn't like this one as a kid. And um, unfortunately, that opinion has not changed much. Just nothing much happens. Um, and I, I've never liked Rosenthorn. I, I just think that she's one of the sillier villains. She's kind of one of the more kind of useless villains in, in my opinion. But anyway, I, I did have a couple quick things on this one. Um, page one, nice to see the rocket racer again. Now I know we just saw it before in that, uh, star spangled kid story, but I like it much better in this story. I like the way it looks. I like, you know, seeing it flying around and everything. I just think it's kind of a neat idea. It's one of those nice, you know, cheesy golden age ideas that, I don't know, it's just kind of fun. This idea of this flying Studebaker or whatever it is here. Uh, let's see. Nakedness. All kinds of nakedness in this issue. And I'm thinking, are they trying maybe a little too hard to ape New Teen Titans? Because New Teen Titans did a lot of this kind of stuff early in its run, too. You know, where they'd all go to, like, a pool party and, and Starfire would, you know, walk out naked not realizing how, you know, our sensibilities here on Earth work or some shit like that. And I'm kind of thinking maybe they're trying to do sort of a similar take. And I'm not sure how effective they are in some of it either. Uh, Rose. Rose is a total head case. And nobody seems bothered by this. <laughs> now, if I'm out with my... I mean, if I'm out with my buddies on a private island for a little getaway time and this creepy bitch just walks out of the woods and starts wanting to know about my deepest fears and nightmares, I'm like, yeah, guys, come on. It's time to go, right? Uh, You you all aren't actually going to go to sleep tonight, right? Yeah, exactly. We're going to keep watch out for this, right? Yeah. And, yeah, she's just, from the very first panel with her, you can see she's not quite right in the head. And yet they're all laying their souls bare, and then, yeah, like you said, going to sleep with her hanging around. And I'm like, no, 
No, I don't think so. Let's see what else have I got on it. Really not that much. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think overall, I think it's kind of a mediocre story. Um, it, it's it's really, it's such a shame to me that this is Newton's last work because I, I just wish he was given something a little bit better to work with. The art's fine. It's it's passable. It's not his best stuff, but, you know, like I say, the health issues and all that. I don't think the coloring helps it much at all. Um, but the biggest problem is that the story is just kind of bland. And it just has a, uh, a lackluster bad guy, in my opinion. Um, honestly, the thing that got me the most excited about it was, uh, was the pinup at the back. The, uh, the one by McFarlane and DiZaniga. Because starting next issue, Todd McFarlane. Yes, that yeah, Todd McFarlane. I was about McFarlane. to say, this is going to be so weird. Mm-hmm. That we're going to be, we're going to be like, you know, uh, in this era, talking about somebody that is more pretty much known for Spider-Man and Spawn, yep. in all honesty. So it's going to be interesting. Well, it's funny you should say that because he came to my attention and the Hulk. I always think of him as the definitive Hulk artist, mm. which I guess is a little, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think... I think his Hulk is good. I do not like how monstrously huge he is compared to the other characters. Uh, the Hulk, when he's like by himself fighting people, I really like. But when he's right. like with Betty, it's just like that's a little too big, in my opinion. But that's just that's just my opinion. So you know. well, no, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with that because um, I remember even at the time, as enamored as I was of it, because that's really both where I discovered Todd McFarlane, and it's also where I kind of rediscovered the Hulk, and was a faithful Hulk reader for those couple years that he was on the title. Um, as as enamored as I was of it at the time. I went back and was rereading it. Oh, this is a couple of years ago and found that it didn't quite hold up artistically the way that I really had hoped that it would. So I'm really optimistic about where we're headed into, but I'm also a little bit nervous about it because this is where he cut his teeth. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like his first regular gig. Now he had done one or two things before this. Uh, it mentions here, uh, Marvel's coyote, um, which I thought was terrible. Um, but I, I did read ahead. I read, um, the next issue beyond this, the first McFarlane issue and loved the art in that. So at least for a time, um, I, I'm really looking forward to this, but like I say, he, he cut his teeth on this. And so he basically just progressed f straight from this to Hulk, which, as I said, as I, as I reexamined the Hulk, didn't quite dig it as much as I did originally. So it's going to be interesting. We're, we're actually going to see uh, kind of the birth and evolution of, of McFarlane and of his whole style. So I think that's going to be very interesting to see. Um, but at least speaking for just strictly the next issue, I, I think he, he brings a, a kind of a, a revigoration to this. Honestly, he, he gives them a more, Oh, he gives them a very different look, but I think it's a much more modern look, which fits this team. It gives them kind of their own feel and their own identity, which I think at this point they're desperate for. Because up until this point, they're just kind of... They're just kind of an extension of the JSA. And I, I think that the thing that we felt that maybe has been lacking a little bit in these stories is them being like their own thing. Mm -hmm. And starting next issue, that... The, the art gives it that feel because there's nothing else like that at the at that time in 1985 there was nothing else that looked like what McFarlane's going to be bringing to the table so I, I'm, I'm excited about it I think it's going to be pretty cool 
but that's really that's all I've got on this particular issue. Yeah, um, I don't I don't have a whole lot either. In all honesty, uh, you know, I, I've spoken before and I mentioned it like twice in this episode already, so I feel bad for bringing it up again. That I was you know a little down initially on you know not looking forward to the All Star issues and really liking them. Uh, this is one of those times where I remember not really digging something and it holding up like that uh, <laughs> on the reread. It is not that it's bad, so I want to say that. And I really like what Roy Thomas is going for in terms of the characterizations in this issue. Like, the plot itself doesn't hold up. You're absolutely right. I agree with everything you said. It's like this mysterious woman comes out of the woods, and then another mysterious woman comes out of the woods, and they just leave going, Ah, nothing to see here, let's go. I mean, that's just, eh, it doesn't hold up. What I liked about it was the interaction between the four Infinity Incorporated members, where you have Lyda and Hector, who can't keep their freaking hands off of each other. She's Wonder Woman's daughter, dude. Would you be able to keep your hands I'm off of her? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just like, <laughs> dude, get a room. Like, seriously. And they try to. Uh, I really feel bad for Albert, because he's got a thing for every female member of the team, it seems. Um which I think is Lyda, Jenny Lynn Hated, and Norda, right? No, no that's, that's a terrible joke. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> Didn't they wind up together eventually? Nuclon and Norda? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Talk about the love that dare not speak its name. The um, so I, They had some chicks together, I, right? <laughs> wow. Uh, so I, I kind of liked all of that. I liked, I liked Albert's awkwardness, where one, you know... Jenny, who's just, you know, a girl from the Midwest wanting to cut loose and go skinny dipping, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, like she's in her early 20s. So, you know, just, you know, being a little wild and stuff. Not that she was coming on to Albert. In fact, she has a thought balloon about that. She goes, oh, he probably thinks I was coming on to him, which is fair. But Albert's just completely uncomfortable in that. So that part of it, I kind of liked. Once Rose shows up, my interest in the story just plummets. Because the whole thing about them talking about their nightmares feels like such a tacked-on way to get this conversation started. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how we're going to tell her origin. And, I'm, I'm sorry, Roy and Dan, I love you both to death, but there was nothing here to suggest that they're the same person. There was nothing in the dialogue, there was nothing in any of that to suggest that these two were one and the same. Which is why he probably had to add that thing on at the end, because it's not quite clear. Uh, the fight itself is perfunctory. I'm not... Uh, it's not bad. It's not good. You know what would have saved this, though? Is, you know, every one of them... This is the other thing that kind of drove me nuts, is that every single one of them, their dreams are... You know, their nightmares, rather, are fairly predictable, given who they are and who their parents are. I wish one of them had, you know, their nightmare had been, so I'm rolling this big donut when this snake wearing a vest. You know, I would have loved that. It would have saved the whole or, thing for me. Or, or a new client goes, is it the same dream where you're standing atop of a pyramid where thousands of naked women are throwing pickles at you? <laughs> Why am I the only one that has that dream? Um, so, you know, my biggest complaint about this issue, and I feel so bad about this, is the art. I just really wasn't enamored of the art. And this is a guy, this is coming from a guy that looked at Don Newton's Batman work and thought it was awesome. And looked at mm -hmm. Don Newton's Captain Marvel work and thought it was awesome. 
And I understand, you know, like you said, health concerns, all that. So, you know, cutting huge metric yards of slack here. But at the same time, at the end of the day, i got to be honest, it just didn't do anything for me. Uh, I'm hoping that if he had lived and had been in better health, that the art would have been better. But for this issue, the people are at odd angles, the anatomy's all messed up. Uh, the page layouts themselves are fine, but it's just like the specifics are the problem. Especially, and like in the middle of it, Jenny Lynn shows up and she's not green. And they have to have some dialogue explaining that. And it just didn't, uh, that was like the one part was like, well, what the hell, where, they, where is this coming from? She told right. this woman that they're Infinity Incorporated, which is fine because they revealed their identities in the previous issue. So that's fair. But it's just like, ah. I just it, this was a slog to get through. I'm going to admit this was a this was a. I'm kind of looking forward to things picking up next time, uh, and, and, and getting to the the other two books because it was just like this. This was a little rough. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. You other <laughs> brothers can't deny that when a comic book comes with it. No, God, I'm making all kinds of musical references this uh, this episode. So, but that's all I got. There is a who's who ad in this book for Abnegazer, Wraith, and Gast. Um, which, yeah, that you probably would have to, you know, do you know us? The members of the Justice League certainly do. With the aid of Felix Faust, we've been menacing them for the past 20 years. But that still doesn't help us when we try to get dinner reservations at one of the Netherworld's poshest restaurants. <laughs> That's why we always carry Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. One quick glance at our biographies and every maitre d' in the world knows to stay out of our way. Abnegather, Wraith, and Gast. All new art by Comic Book Comic Book Dome's finest from DC Comics. Here's where it began. Be here for the new beginning. Don't leave your home dimension without it. So I did some research here because I knew I had it. Once you mentioned it, I knew I had it, but I was trying to picture mentally what the cover looked like, so I had to look it up. So according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics... Uh, best of DC number 69, that's the one where Nightwing is being handed the wooden plaque with the DC bullet on it that says Year's Best Team Stories. So this issue is reprinted in there, along with, get this, Team Titans, we are gathered here today. I'm pretty sure, let me click on the link here, that that is the wedding of of um donna troy isn't it let's see reprinted from tales of the teen side yes that's the wedding of that is a classic all right another story that's reprinted in there from batman and the outsiders who's of who's afraid of the big red s where geoforce and superman fight so at this point i think it is totally appropriate to play the one of these things is not like the other (laughs) song because yeah wow well you know the other story that's in here too strangely enough you and i just covered and i'll be goddamned if i can remember anything about it it's from tales of the legion number 320 the story called triangle now i read that entire issue and can't remember what the story was about that was the one with magpie oh okay but yeah. is is that the only story because i thought there were multiple stories in that issue aren't there uh there was like a backup story so i wonder if it's it was the backup story. It says here it uh, features um, Colossal Boy and so yeah, that was the backup story. Yeah, not it, I don't know if I'd call that one of the. Well, then again, maybe it was a slow year. I don't know. 
But yeah, the the theme here was year's best team stories. Yeah, no, not this one. Wow, I can't believe they put this in the same league as the wedding of Donna Troy. Wow, no, not at all. Sorry, not not no. I'm not I'm not buying that shenanigans. <laughs> all right, well, are we ready for the elsewhere in the DC multiverse segment? Absolutely. All right, we are still in crisis management mode. So here's the weird thing out this time, folks, is that only one synopsis is from the official (laughs) Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. Now, the reason for this, as I'm going to go into shortly, is that, um, well, frankly, the index is incomplete. What do I mean by that? Well, first off, a little bit of housekeeping. So we received some uh, some feedback from our good buddy Mike Voyles. Mike Voyles of Mike's Amazing World that you can find at dcindexes.com. Yes, that Mike. So Mike wrote to us, uh, I believe this was in the Facebook group, and pointed out that, uh, that I had missed, frankly, uh, a pre-crisis monitor appearance that was in Warlord number 90. Now, I didn't know anything about it because... It's not in the official index, and that's what I've used all these years for these things. Now, I knew that there was an error in the index, but I had long hoped that there were no omissions. Well, sadly, there are at least two of them. This was one of them. So I don't have a synopsis for this one because, like I say, it's not in the index. But basically, using the format we've already used for the show, here's what I got on this. Um... The monitor's role in this is on pages, uh, or excuse me, page rather, 17. It's just two panels, panels two and three. So after an establishing shot of the satellite, which looks quite different from all other depictions that we've seen of it uh, up to this point and even beyond this point, uh, after that first panel of just the satellite shot, we see the monitor's hand is shown as he watches Travis Morgan, who's the warlord, and remarks about his resourcefulness. He asks Lila, who's not shown, so he basically calls off panel to her, if she would program the appropriate tape so that they may review Morgan's history, which leads us directly into the appearance of the Monitor that we already discussed, uh, which took place in the next issue, issue 91, where we see the Monitor actually reviewing the tapes that he requested. So the two link together very nicely, but that's the extent of you know, his appearance in there, it doesn't direct, you know affect the story or anything. It's essentially just about midway through the story. Uh, we, we cut to the monitor observing him and then we cut right back again. So it, it doesn't affect the story whatsoever. Uh, regarding the story, I, I didn't bother doing up a synopsis. Uh, I just had one brief note, which was, I liked the issue. It was a lot of fun. Um, I didn't know exactly everything that was going on because I, I really have read very little of Warlord. I thought the art was really nice, which was odd because I think it takes a real big step down the very next issue. Um, And the biggest thing for me, and this is not unique to this issue of Warlord. It has occurred to me many times as I've thumbed through different copies I've seen here and there. I remain quite impressed by the fact that they got away with some incredibly skimpily dressed women in that title at this time. I mean, this is mid eighties and the title, you know, at this point has been going for 90 issues. So it's been, you know, it's been in existence a long time. I mean, basically the, the women are for all intents and purposes, they're naked 
and they're they're covered with just you know stri- strips of cloth essentially in you know the in the absolute most vital areas. So I mean they're even more skimpy than like Sheena or Red Sonia, and I'm just kind of impressed by that. It's like wow, how did you how did you get away with this? You know how, how did the code not come down on you for something like this? But uh, it's definitely not a criticism because I kind of like naked women, so <laughs> that works. I'm gonna have to check in more of a Warlord at some point. All right, what else have I got for this one? Next up, I want to quickly discuss GI Combat number 70. Uh, excuse me, not 76, 276. GI Combat number 276. And I say quickly discuss because all I have to say about this one is that I want to set the damn record straight about this. This issue does not, does not, does not feature the monitor or the satellite, or Lila, or any connections to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Its listing in the index is an error. It was corrected uh, in the omnibus when they reprinted the index in the companion book. But again, I just want to point it out because everywhere you look on the internet, it lists this as a crisis, uh, a tie-in with the monitor, and it is not. Also, I want to add to that same list, uh, Atari Force number 18, which some of you are probably like, what? And the reason I'm mentioning this is, as part of my homework for our crisis coverage, I've been digging all over the place. I've been going all over the internet to see what other lists are out there. And some of them are quite fun and quite interesting that uh, people have touched on other books because what, where I really got obsessed with this was the idea that there, you know, which I've known for years that the index was incorrect, that there was a mistake, which of course got me to thinking about omissions. And then once Mike found an omission, got me that much more obsessed about omissions. So I've been doing a lot of digging around to see, are there other crisis related books that i've missed over the years and i found a list somewhere i couldn't even tell you where i found it at this point but i found a list that included atari force number 18 and i'm like wow really so i was intrigued and i went and i checked out atari force number 18 and essentially it comes down to this uh the characters use their ship to basically hop between dimensions at one point and on one of their dimensional hops in that issue, they ha- they hit some basically they hit some turbulence, and the guy that's flying the ship remarks on the fact that the universe that they happen to be in is collapsing, and they ride out the turbulence and they break through the other side and the story continues. I'm gonna call shenanigans on that. I don't consider that a crisis related thing. Because Atari Force was very clearly supposed to be taking place outside of the DC Universe proper. So it was in the same realm as something like Baron Earth or uh, Camelot 3000 or Ronin and those types of things. It it wasn't tied into it. Um, And there's actually evidence of that. Again, if you look at the companion book that comes with the Omnibus for Crisis... There's a great spot in there, and unfortunately I don't have it sitting here in front of me, but there's a great uh, list in there where it's essentially a yes and no column for books that are going to have the monitor appearance and and be crisis-related and books that were clearly hands-off. And in the no column is clearly marked Atari Force. 
Although there is a book that's in that column that eventually would end up tying into crisis. So it's all a little bit muddled. But ultimately, yeah, I'm going to say eh on that one. I don't consider Atari Force number 18 to be crisis related. Uh, unless somebody out there knows better or, or can present some better evidence for that one, I'm leaving that one off my official list. Yeah, that's that's somebody really stretching. Stretching. Point, yeah. So. Yeah. Speaking of stretching to make their point, one that is on the official list is the next book up, Jonah Hex number 90. Now, anybody that knows me knows I love me some Jonah Hex, so I don't want to say disparaging things about Jonah Hex, but this one, I don't know. So, from the official Crisis on uh, Infinite Earths crossover index, the synopsis simply reads, The Monitor, in disguise gives Jonah Hex a horse. So the Monitor's role in this one, um, well, that's really the question, I think, is what is the Monitor's role in this issue? So if one were to read just this issue, just this one alone, knowing what the index says about the Monitor in disguise, it might be very easy to see the old man on pages 19 through 22 as that character. However... As the Jonah Hex guy, I'm going to call shenanigans on this. Because first off, we've never seen and we will never see the Monitor disguising himself as somebody else. That just never happens anywhere else. We've never seen the Monitor willfully aiding the heroes before. Now, he has been involved in stories where he ended up doing, in that JSA-JLA crossover, he inadvertently assisted the heroes in defeating the villains, but that was completely by accident. He didn't intend to do that. So we've never seen the Monitor willfully aiding the heroes. What we have seen him doing is supplying the super villains with things that will test the heroes, but not doing something like this. So I think, you know, in this instance where he supposedly gives Jonah Hex a horse, I, I, I don't quite buy that. But here's the biggest one. Uh, you know, lastly, and I, I think most importantly, is this beam from the sky thing. Oh. So this beam shoots down from the sky, barely misses Hex, and when he turns around, the old man is gone. So it, but I initially you might think, okay, it's some form of transporter beam, right? That it, it is shot down from the satellite, hit the monitor who was in disguise as the old man, and beamed him back up to the satellite. But it's not. That ray actually appears in the next two issues. What it actually is, is it's the beam that abducts Hex from the 19th century at the end of this series. Because this, this series ends two issues from now, in issue 92. The very last page of issue 92, the beam comes back, hits Hex... And he's transported to the mid-21st post-apocalyptic century that's depicted in his new series, which was simply called Hex, where he was in kind of like Mad Max world. So I'm going to be honest. I'm going to call this one for what it is. Uh, you know, much like Vigilante number 22, I'm calling shenanigans. I, I think it needs to be discarded from the official list of monitor appearances, at least until such time as I see more evidence that proves essentially, that the old man really is the monitor. I'm just not buying it. I, I don't think there's enough evidence here to conclusively say that that's what is going on. 
Although it does beg the question, if the monitor is not the old man, then what the hell happened to the old man? But I don't really give a shit about the old man, so I don't care. Um, notes on this one real quick. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous cover mm-hmm. by uh, Tech Sierra on this. I absolutely adore the cover. This guy would be the regular artist um, on the Hex series. Unfortunately, on the interior, you have Gray Morrow, who I have nothing against personally, but this dude is completely wrong for Jonah Hex, in my opinion. I don't care for Gray Morrow's stuff, generally speaking. He tells a fine uh, cowboy tale, but Jonah Hex is not a cowboy tale, and it annoys me greatly. That's essentially what he gave us Mm -hmm. here. Um as far as the story itself, I'm not going into it. I thought it was really bad. I think it was obvious the the, the series is kind of petering out at this point. Um, but I just have to ask the question that if Silver Ames is really the fastest gun in the West next to Jonah Hex, why hasn't anyone ever heard of this bitch before? <laughs> and when the hell did Jonah Hex become the fastest gun in the West anyway? Yeah, it- that comes really out of left field. It's funny because I, I have like very little experience with Jonah Hex. So uh, I was kind of looking forward to reading this issue because I'm like, well, last, you know, Scott and I can kind of talk about Jonah Hex and make it part of the show. Because uh, I know you are the, the Hex expert. And I read this issue and I'm reading it and I'm like, well, it's okay. and It's, it's okay. And then I get to the last page and I'm like, well, I understand what the writer was going for here that, you know... He builds up this character, uh, you know, hot chick with white hair, you know, uh, builds her up, builds her up, and then just, she's dead, and that just kind of reflects how, in the Old West, that's how it worked. You, you know, you you set yourself up for something, and you, you could be taken down just as easily. Uh, so we see that, but it just, it didn't make for a very satisfying read overall. Uh, I, I like the cover. But other than that, I, I was kind of lukewarm on this issue, artwork and writing-wise. It really was. Well, three quick things on that. For one thing, thank you very much for the compliment, but I, I will have to say that I'm a little hesitant to take the label of Jonah Hex expert. I prefer Jonah Hex enthusiast because the real expert, in my opinion, is my buddy Dwayne the Canoe Guy that runs the uh, Matching Dragoon site. That guy knows his Jonah Hex backwards and forwards, so... Uh, I'm happy to plug his site. He's a hell of a nice guy. Um, secondly, dude, if you're looking to seriously you know, dive into Jonah Hex, or at least just kind of dip your toes in the water, let me know, and I'll give you some good Jonah Hex <laughs> stories, okay? Because this, this is not a good one. This is not representative of good Hex right here. Um, thirdly, I had a real problem with the end of the story, because on the one hand, the fact that she walks up, starts bragging her ass off, and she draws on Jonah Hex, and he just simply pulls an Indiana Jones, whips out his gun, and just shoots her dead in the middle of the street. On the one hand, I'm like, that's classic Hex. But on the other hand, I'm like, Jonah Hex just killed a woman in the middle of the street. Would he really do that? And I I have to wrestle with that, because on the one hand, I like to think of him as being better than that. But on the other hand, I mean, he kicked a crippled woman off a cliff at one point. So... You know, he's not a superhero. He's not even a hero. He's kind of an asshole in a lot of he's, ways. So, he's one of the, in my experiences with him, which has been like you know a few issues here and there, and mainly the J, uh, the DC Universe Trail of Time novel, uh, where he he plays right. a significant part. He strikes me as somebody that's not even an anti-hero. Right, he is a guy that through circumstances of his life. He has his own kind of way of doing things. 
He yes. has his own, I don't want to call it code, but, you know, for lack of a better term, it's his own code. And usually he's in it for the payday. He's a bounty hunter. That is his job. That is how he feeds himself. And it seems like he decides how to get involved with something based on split-second decisions at the time that it's happening. Absolutely. Like, he'll stand up for the little guy or for somebody who's kind of outnumbered because he knows what it feels like to be outnumbered. But it's not like he's going to, you know, he's not going to go, you know, into a town and clean it up unless it directly involves with what he's doing at that moment. And I always kind of liked that about the character, that here's a guy that would kick a crippled woman off a cliff if she deserved it, you know, or... Right, exactly, uh, You know, it's not going to stop him. Or, like, in Trail of Time, there's this great scene where he saves this girl, not because she was kidnapped and abused by a bunch of, you know, outlaws, but because her dad owed him money, and that's how he's going to get his money back. Exactly. Yeah. See, that's the thing is that Jonah Hex to me is that one character where I think it's almost impossible for anybody, you know, fanboy or whatever, to look at him in any particular story and go, come on, Jonah Hex wouldn't do that. Because the thing with Jonah Hex that always worked for me is that in his earliest issues, in his earliest appearances, and and when he's handled the, the best... Uh, is when he is extremely mercurial where in one issue he'll he'll come across a, a say a crying child in need of assistance and and he shows kind of that tender side and he takes that kid under their under his wing and and helps them out and kills the bad guys whatever needs to be done but then the very next time same scenario and he's like well if there's no gain in it for me piss on him and and rides off and i like that about him because it makes him a very unpredictable person he's not so much living by a code but like you say it's kind of his whims of the moment and that's one of the things i find strangely compelling and endearing about the characters you never know what the hell he's gonna do you know you you never know whether he's gonna kiss you punch you or kill you and I like that about him, and so that I I actually in a in He's a really strange, what we're saying. <laughs> but in a really strange way, although it kind of stymied me, I kind of like the ending. That the ending made me really stop and think. Well, how do I feel about this? Because on the one hand, it's in character, and the other hand, it's kind of like, like I say, he just he just gunned this woman down in cold blood. But that's kind of yeah. Him. You know, if he's in that mood, because, you know, the the one thing you do see consistently over and over again is Jonah's very much fuck with me and I'll kill you. <laughs> and I like that about him. And so it, in a in a in a weird kind of way, it shouldn't matter who it is. And in this is in this instance, it doesn't. Chivalry plays no part in this. She draws on him and he kills her. Bang dead. Kind of like that, you know, but uh, it, it's just from our viewpoint and our sensibilities that's kind of weird to see of dude that was a woman but it, in this instance didn't make any difference to him at all i i, I don't know I, I like it and i don't like it at the same time it's kind of weird lastly on this list and again <laughs> i have to throw out a thanks to our buddy mike voiles of mike's amazing world because i think i would have missed this one 
This is not on the official list. Uh, this is World's Finest number 314. So again, no synopsis on this one. And believe me, y- you wouldn't want me to give you my synopsis <laughs> for this one. <laughs> the monitor's role in this issue is all on page 22. Uh, all but the first panel of that page is the monitor's role. With the monitor's dialogue spilling over into the first panel of the next page. Remember how they used to do that in the Superman titles? Where like It would be like the, the wraparound, yeah. or, or I forget what they call it, the transitional piece mm-hmm. to the next scene would be a spillover of dialogue from the last scene. Yeah, I always liked that. That's that. kind of what it does here. Yeah, I like that too, and, and that's what happens here. So uh, the monitor and Lila witness the conclusion of the story for this issue... And the Monitor observes that Superman is the weak link in the world's finest team because of his compassion. Now, Lila calls him right out on this, and she says, but that's what you said about Batman being the weak link last time, for the exact same reason. So then she hand. this is the silly part here, well, the silly part of this part, because believe me, this issue is chock full of silly parts. She hands him a clipboard, and he signs it. And guess what he signs it as? The it's monitor. Such a nice I'm signature like, too. I'm like, what? he's obviously been working on his handwriting skills. I'm very impressed. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, nice calligraphy there. <laughs> he completely blows off her rebuttal, and then uh, he delivers a cryptic remark about how they can make use of these observations for people that will pay them well for it, and and that sort of thing, which again lends into what we've said many times that characterization of the monitor not really, not really tightened down at this point people didn't really know who and what he was going to be and that's obvious from from this one um i'm not gonna pull any punches folks this story is awful it's oh it's really awful though to be fair with with one exception the art is good yeah i was just gonna say the art's not bad at all i i actually like stan walk a lot it's funny because when we did um world's finest 311 um I kept looking at Stan Walk and looking at the art and going, I know this guy from some, where do I? And I, I just couldn't put it together. This time I was able to put it together because he's teamed with um, Alfredo Alcala. Now, but here's the thing though. I think they're a poor match for this book with their teamed art style. I think that they're much, much better suited for Swamp Thing and Swamp Thing is where they both eventually wind up just shortly after this. Um, when um, Tottleben and um, Bissett left Swamp Thing during Moore's run, Walk and Alcala end up coming in afterwards. Uh, so that's where they eventually transition to. So yeah, the art's not bad, just doesn't quite fit this, I don't think. I, I don't like Superman inked by, by Alcala, because as I said before, Alcala to me has that greasy... Um, horror style to his art to his inking and i i just i don't like superman in that world if that makes any sense um i really have very little on this uh page eight last two panels i'm not kidding folks this is the setup for this bruce wayne ducks into his waiting limousine and converses with alfred as he changes changes into his superman costume i'm gonna let that sink in for a second Bruce Wayne ducks into his waiting limo and converses with Alfred the butler as he changes into his Superman costume. This is a goof. This isn't one of those issues where Clark Kent pretends to be Batman and Bruce Wayne pretends to be Superman so that they can save each other's secret ID from Lois Lane or whatever. No, no, no. They 
flat screwed up. Bruce Wayne changed into a Superman costume in the back of his limousine. And then you flip the page and Batman's in action. And I'm like, how the hell did this slip past everybody involved? You know, from the writer to the artist, to the inker, especially to the editor, how did they miss that? But they missed you it. You had and, I mean, it's one not... job. <laughs> exactly. But I, I got I to gotta open it just to look at this again. But I know you and I were talking about this before we got started. But you look at the, the art on that page, and it's not even a coloring error. I mean, I, that I could forgive. If they simply miscolored Batman's cape red, <laughs> No, I would forgive it. But it is not. It is Bruce Wayne sitting there and he's got you know superman's tunic on so there's no batman gloves or anything it's just the blue tunic and he's putting on the red superman cape and the yellow s is clearly depicted i mean it's it's penciled it's inked it's colored everything so this is not just a coloring mistake either i mean they have him in the wrong costume and i'm just blown away by that and that is not the only now that is by far the worst mistake in the issue but it's not the only mistake or it's not even like the only silly moment because there's another moment here right near the end of the book page 18 where batman swings in confronts the villain the villain is holding a knife to the throat of the, the of the victim and she essentially says go away batman leave me alone or i'll kill the, kill the guy or whatever she says and he's like okay i'll go away very next panel he swings around comes in on the other side of her and it should be the exact same scenario all you did was switch sides but suddenly because he's on the other side of her now he's able to wrap her up in his battering i'm like what this is so stupid <laughs> it's so stupid i mean it makes no sense and it, and it just gets worse from there it's really it's i'm sorry it's just not a good story i'm, I'm not going to be nice about it jo- joey cavalieri i don't know what you were thinking the, dude but this story the, is the, just this was bad. just a bad era of world's finest in general every issue i've read every issue i've just picked up and randomly read from like the th- 301 on has been like a slog to get through and they're just it just ran out of steam and mm-hmm. you know it just it just wasn't all that good most of the time. So, and I feel bad saying that because I don't want to. I don't want to think bad of the, you know my two favorite characters teaming up. But you know, I've I've long been of the opinion that that like with the Punisher, where I think the Punisher works best if you do like one six issue limited series a year, and just get a good Punisher story out there, and not have him be in like three ongoings. Uh, you know, right. the, the care it works out. I think I think it's the same after a while with the world's finest. I'm not suggesting that the decades of world's finest stories were useless and that they were always bad, but I think after a certain period of time, te- Batman teaming up with Superman should be a special thing. It should be like the big budget blockbuster movie of a story, and it's like one of the few times where I think the the kind of more decompressed storytelling worked in Jeff Loeb's Superman Batman run. Because, you know, it felt like you were getting one story over six months. Uh, Whereas here, you know, they were, you know, just... It must be maddening coming up with scenarios to get these guys together on a monthly basis. So, I don't know. I wasn't wasn't really all that... I I didn't know about this issue right before we started recording. Right. So I've been kind of like 
kind of reading through it a little bit, and I'm like, wow, sometimes the art's really good, but the story is just like, da 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 da. Yeah, it's not good. Well, you know, I will give them one one slight kudos here is that they don't jump through hoops to get these guys together because in the in the most strict sense it's not really a team up it's a story that just happens to have and and mostly focus on superman and batman but no hoops are jumped through to get them together it's just through the dynamics of the story it happens to touch both their lives so that's one positive i guess um unfortunately it's just not a very good story <laughs> Page 12 has all kinds of things wrong with it. For one thing, Lois Lane looks like she just came from a Shakespeare festival or something. What the hell is with that outfit she's wearing? She looks completely ridiculous. Superman uses his super speed. He says here, by punching in every possible combination at super speed, I can discover the password code. He's trying to break into this guy's computer at work. Shouldn't it lock him out after three attempts? Yeah. (laughs) Probably. Uh... My my only other note on this one, and maybe you can answer this, Mike. Who the hell is the redhead? She's never named in this story. And I don't know who she is. I don't remember Bruce Wayne having a steady redheaded girlfriend. I don't know either. It's not familiar. She's with him through the entire issue, but I... I if he said her name, I missed it entirely. But I kept looking, I kept thumbing through here. I'm thumbing through it now, and I still don't see where she's reference she's actually somewhat integral to the story yet i couldn't find her name anywhere i'm not really sure i i I do not recognize her i'm going to uh i'm gonna have to spy ahead on future issues and see if maybe uh maybe there might be more with the monitor or what because that wraparound sequence wraps around to the last page because the monitor says that he wants to observe this thing that happens on the last page. Well, the thing on the last page is the setup of the villain, presumably for the next issue. It just says a mysterious woman. So I'm wondering if that pays off at all or or not. You know, that he was actually interested or invested in whoever this is. And I have no idea who she is. I'm presuming it's another lame, made-up villain like the one for this <laughs> issue. The one for this issue is the Executrix, which is just... <laughs> that's how we're ending this really <laughs> oh I don't want it I don't want it to. here's how we're ending the episode right here in two weeks crisis on infinite earths number two Woo-hoo! there you go there, yeah baby that's, that's the epic out right yeah <laughs> now we're cooking with gas you've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday... And occasionally, back to the bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, 
which can be found at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the tales of the Justice Society of America.